Welcome to episode 29 of the Imperfect Progress Podcast. I'm your host, Ann Guzman. If this is your first time dropping into the podcast, my goal here is to empower you with science-based information to improve your health and performance. My goal is always to take quality science and make it accessible to everyone in language and terminology that we can all relate to. And that way we can take this information and put it into motion. Sometimes what I find is there's a lot of great science, but it sits in journals online. And the reality is not a lot of people are going on to scientific websites to browse the journals. So I want to give this research and these scientists a voice that reaches a much broader audience. I also speak with athletes and they can impart so much wisdom around what it takes to compete at a high level, the mindset, the training, the nuances that we may not think about if we haven't been in those shoes. And then we can take that information and apply it to our own athletic and performance scenarios. What have they learned along their journeys that maybe they would have done differently, or maybe they would do it the same. I love highlighting other people's work, their successes, and I'm a huge believer that every one of my guests has so much to offer listeners around science, around sports, and even around the way that they manage adversity and imperfect progress. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is endurance sports and bone health. I was super excited to meet Dr. Emer Dolan because her and I have had banter back and forth for some time now on Twitter. Um, we're both super interested in bone health, and it's always great to take those virtual connections and then to meet in person, even if it's virtually, because Dr. Dolan is in Brazil. So a little bit about Dr. Dolan. She did her undergrad and postgraduate studies at Dublin University in Ireland. And then she was a sports nutrition lecturer in the Robert Gordon University in Scotland before moving to the University of San Paolo in Brazil. And there she did her postdoctoral research. And now she currently leads the San Paolo Research Foundation. And that's a supported project that's investigating how exercise and nutrition influences bone. And her main research interests include energy availability and regulation, bone metabolism, and female physiology. Super interesting, made for a really awesome conversation today. So here's what you'll learn when you listen today. We start off with a little bone 101 to lay the foundation for listeners. So bone metabolism, the roles that bones play in the body, and it's much more far-reaching than just providing structure and being a meat hanger for our muscles. So we cover the typical pattern of bone through the life cycle, and then we dive into the exciting stuff around sport. So some of the things that you'll learn today are energy availability. What is it and why does it matter to our bone health and also to our performance in general? The composition of the calories we take in, does it matter if we're consuming carbohydrates in the diet? What does the science say around carbohydrates and bone health? We touch on what the science says around calcium losses through sweat. I'm a really heavy sweater when I work out, so I've always found this topic super interesting. We also leave you with some actionable suggestions there. Dr. Dolan speaks about the impacts of low energy availability on hormones for both males and females, and why the birth control pill 
can be misleading for female athletes if they're looking at having a period as one of the many signs that they are consuming optimal calorie intake. Super important topic. One thing we discussed today is also the difference between a short-term versus long-term energy restriction or calorie restriction and what's happening with bone in both of those scenarios. What does the science say about how you arrive at low energy availability? Does it matter if you get there through calorie restriction or from excess energy expenditure? Really interesting stuff and there's still some ongoing science on that topic. There's so much we talk about today, how bone actually regulates your body's calcium and how your energy intake can impact this. And lastly, the life history theory. And Dr. Dolan has a brilliant example or analogy about this. And this is essentially about how your body decides to allocate its energy. We hit on so many things today. These are some of the things that you'll learn about. I'm excited for you to learn more about bone health today and why it's important to have a preventative approach to bone health versus a reactive one. Many athletes put bone health as an afterthought, right? It's not something that's top of mind. But we need to remember that it can derail your season and it can derail an athletic career. So it's something to take seriously. Not to mention for any coaches, parents, or young athletes, it's so important to remember that what we do in our youth could significantly impact our bone health in our later years. And we talk about that with some good takeaways there. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Keep listening once the podcast is over because I also have a special offer from my amazing podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker, including some new courses that they're offering to help you learn more about the blood analysis that they provide you with. So that's another tool that you can add to your toolbox to help you manage your health and performance and stay tuned for that. And with that, let's jump inside and learn from Dr. Emer Dolan. It's going to be awesome. I'll see you in the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Emer. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to their conversation. Oh, so am I. I know that you and I are both uh, super interested in bone health and endurance sports. And, and we just had a little chat before the podcast. And I see that you're into cycling now too, which is awesome. So yeah, I think I think we're both going to be really into this conversation, which is exciting. Before we jump into it though, you know, Oftentimes I can really get a good sense of my guests through the internet and research and not that I'm stalking my guests, but I, I research them and learn about them. But you know, there's not that much about you on the internet. So I know I have your bio, but I'm, I'm really curious because I know you're an exercise physiologist and you've been in the, the space of sports science for some time, but I didn't come across, you know, are you an athlete and is that how you got into sports science? To be honest now, to call me an athlete would be very, very strong. I've always been very into sport and exercise. I played a lot of more team sports when I was younger, but um, always at a fairly, fairly low level, to be honest with you. Um, but when I was leaving school and kind of deciding what I wanted to do, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I absolutely loved sport and activity. And I also love science. So there was a sport and exercise science degree in DCU in Ireland, where I'm from. And so to be honest, 
for want of a better idea, I decided sure I'll go for that because I like science and I like sport. And yeah. Luckily, it worked out well because 15 years later, I'm still at it. <laughs> um, but really, it was a kind of, I can't think of anything else. So I'll go for this. Yeah. Well, I did the same thing <laughs> when I started. I just thought, what do I like? I like the body. I like sport. And as far as moving into research, when you finished your degree, did you fall into research around, um, I know that you and actually I had a previous podcast with Dr. Brian Saunders and you're both researching bone and you've both researched beta alanine and other sports nutrition supplements. Was that due to the lab you were in or was it a prior interest of yours? Well, I suppose I've always had the personal interest, um, as I say, <laughs> from a very recreational low level point of view, but I was always uh, very into sports and activity. When I was finishing up my undergraduate degree in sports science, uh, one of the lecturers advertised a PhD opportunity um, and it was all around making weight and weight cycling in horse racing jockeys. Mm. And so, again, hadn't a clue what I kind of really wanted to do when I grew up, but I just thought that the project sounded really interesting, really fascinating. So I decided to submit an application for that and I was very fortunate to get it. Um, so I actually jumped straight from my undergrad in sports science and health to this PhD in um, uh, focusing on horse racing jockeys. And that's really uh, maybe to preempt one of your next questions where my interest in bone health came about, because one of the things that we we're seeing with these guys, uh, for anyone who's not aware, horse racing jockeys, it's a weight category sport where essentially the horses are assigned a weight. Um, you strap a bit more weight onto the, the horses with better odds. And the idea is to increase competitiveness because you kind of want to put more weight on the better ones to increase the chances of sorry, to reduce the chances that uh, that one is just going to sprint to the finish, make it a bit more competitive and exciting. But that's a real challenge for the jockeys because they basically have to align with what the weight that's allocated and they end up doing quite a lot of weight restriction and weight cycling. So that's where my interest in kind of bone health and energy regulation started because bone was one of the things that we really delved into and discovered that really there was quite negative bone consequences of weight restriction, weight cycling for these guys, which is, of course, for, for people who ride extremely fast, powerful horses for a living is not a particularly good thing. Yeah, I know. I've read some research about jockeys and you know, before before I came across that, I didn't even really ever think about that. And I was like, oh, okay, this makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I'd always been thinking endurance athletes or, you know, other sports with power to weight. But I guess horseback racing was never high on my radar until I started researching bone as well. That's super interesting. Yeah, I find um, bone health is just a topic that doesn't get the attention it requires when it comes to you know, articles in health and fitness magazines or even topics that are discussed on social media. Yet it's interesting, right? Because the consequences of poor bone health really can be life-changing and can impact your mobility and quality of life in particular when you're older. But today I know that you and I really want to speak about um, the consequences for athletes of poor mm -hmm. bone health and how can that impact your training and your racing and, you know, I think that, like I said, it's often something that's overlooked, but in reality, you know, a bone injury could really derail an entire season, depending on the type of sport you're competing in and where that injury is. Absolutely. And I think not only the season, depending on when it happens, it could also derail your entire career, uh, mm -hmm. depending on where you are. And I think another thing that's very interesting to think about with bones 
is that it's not always just about the injury or the, the potential for fracture, which is, of course, a really important thing. It's also that bones are involved in a lot of other processes and are kind of the, 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 the talk to other organs and other tissues in the body, especially the muscle. So sometimes if we see an issue with bone health in an athlete, that can also really point to other things that are going on that can also impact uh, your both your health and performance in a lot of ways. So I think for me, yeah, bones are just such an interesting uh, tissue to study. Particularly, as you said, there's, we don't, in comparison to what we know about, say, the muscle, we know mm-hmm. so much less. However, there's just as much, if not more, going on there under the surface that I think is really fascinating to dig into. Yeah, you make a great point. I had no idea just how metabolically active bone was until I started researching it or about any of this crosstalk with other tissues in the body. Like It was totally enlightening for me. So yeah, I'm interested to hear more about that. Before we dig into too much detail, though, I really want to take listeners through a bit of an overview of what healthy bone and bone growth through a life cycle looks like. And then what I thought we could do is, you know, just revisit that a bit later on and how how does that healthy life cycle change as an endurance athlete based on some of the factors we're going to discuss, like sports nutrition and I'm um, not consuming enough calories. So I was hoping we could start off with a little bone 101. So for anyone who's listening who maybe doesn't know a lot about bone health through the life cycle, if you could point out some of those milestones like peak bone health and what happens after menopause, just to give a bit of a big picture. And then we can maybe also do some definitions after this. Yep. No problem at all. I think uh, before we go through that life cycle bit, I'd just like to to highlight a little bit about what the bone actually does. What's the the point of it in the body? Because that kind of really then feeds into what it looks like across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we visualize bones, we think about skeletons and skulls and they're symbolizing death. And we just have this image that it's the bone is just a scaffolding. Uh, I think meat right. hanger was uh, something that uh, <laughs> that you used. And really, it's so much more than that. Um, our bones, okay, absolutely. They provide structural support. They provide lead- levers that we use uh, for movement. They protect our vital organs. Um, so they're absolutely essential from that kind of structural support and movement point of view. But like you just mentioned, they're also highly metabolically active. So they also act, for example, to control, uh, to regulate minerals, uh, particularly of calcium and phosphorus, which the calcium in, say, the bloodstream is absolutely essential for a whole range of um, functions, including uh, muscle contraction. Um, the bones are going to be involved, uh, very, very closely involved in regulating those levels dynamically right throughout the day so that's a really important function they also uh, red blood cells are created in the blo- uh, the the bone marrow and they also have a role as an endocrine organ and what that means is they actually secrete hormones that then go off and act in a variety of other tissues so for example osteocalcin is a really important one and it actually has a lot of roles in um carbohydrate regulation energy regulation uh, so really they're doing an awful lot more than just kind of this scaffolding system that we sometimes <laughs> write them off on there's a mm-hmm. lot going on there under the surface and in order for the bones to fulfill all of these multiple processes they have to be extremely metabolically active and dynamically, they have to be able to respond to what's going on day to day. Um, And this means that our bones are in a constant state of turnover. Because for example, if you're 
calcium level drops. Sometimes a little bit will be leached from the bone to, to normalize that. And then it needs to be put back in. Um, they're always having to, there's a really complex like networks of cells uh, that are going on there that are talking to each other, that are talking to other tissues to make sure that it's able to simultaneously fulfill all of these functions at the same time. Now, the thing about bone is, although there's a lot going on underneath the surface, kind of measurable changes in terms of, we'll, and we'll talk about definitions in a little while, in terms of, say, its mass, its structure, mm-hmm. they move quite slowly. So if you kind of take a big picture look, it looks like it's moving quite slowly, but into the surface, like I say, there's an awful lot going on. But essentially, when you think about your bone throughout the lifespan, there's a couple of kind of key phases that we need to think of. Throughout childhood and adolescence, your bone is really developing very, very fast and your it's your bones are getting denser, the the kind of microarchitecture, the internal structure is developing. And that happens really quite quickly throughout childhood and adolescence. That's a really, really key time to look after your bones. We tend to, uh, once you get into your 20s, that kind of period of growth tends to level off. It's continuing, but it slows down. And most people hit their peak bone mass around about late 20s, 30s. Um, as I say, with the majority of that happening a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So then once you get to kind of 20, 30, you've kind of, your bones are about as big and as dense as they're going to be. And then you, uh, you, you reach a phase where it's relatively stable. And again, I'm talking from a, a big picture look here. There's still that underlying, all of that underlying metabolism going. But from the point of view of the actual size and shape of your bones, there's a period of relative stability there um, from kind of 30s, right throughout adulthood. Then once for women, around about menopause, which let's say, for argument's sake, around about the the 50s, obviously it's going to vary a lot person to person. For men, maybe a little bit later, we hit a point where you start to actually lose bone. And as you get into older age, then what you really want to do is either to hit as high, actually not either, both. You want to hit as high a peak as possible and you want to hold on for it for as long as possible. So when that decline starts happening in later life, you still have enough there to last you. Um, So there are three kind of big phases that you really have to think about. Developing peak mass, maintaining it for, for that kind of more stable period, and then minimizing the decline or loss in later life are the three, I suppose, big phases that you need to think about. Yeah, that's great. And I appreciate you speaking about, you know, all of the other things that bone does in the body with uh, calcium regulation and red blood cells, because you're right. um, I do think that they're kind of seen as a meat hanger just for our (laughs) muscles. Um, It's so important what you mentioned about, you know, being a child and as adolescents and how quickly our bones are growing, because I think sometimes as a society, we tend to think about bone health and the elderly. When in reality, you know, of course it's always important, but what we do as children and teens is incredibly important for maximizing that peak bone mass. And, you know, for anyone's listening who might coach young athletes, is a young athlete, is a parent. I mean, these are really important things to keep in mind. Um, If you have runners and cyclists, I know we're going to talk a lot about endurance sports today. And just how important it is to, you know, not lose sight of the bigger picture when we're thinking about power to weight and, you know, at any time, but in particular, it's so important when you're a young athlete. And I know it's so hard to care 
right? It is so hard to care about your bones when you're 15 or 20. I'm not going to lie. When I was 15 or 20, I was not thinking about my bone health, right? Like, (laughs) this is just not top of mind. I was in the gym. I was lifting weights. I always loved that. Um, As a coincidence, I was helping my bones. But you know, you're thinking about your muscles or your speed or your sport. So, you know, to just get more conversations like this out there, I think is super important. And that point, you know, in Canada, I know, I think osteoporosis Canada um, says that osteoporosis is actually a pediatric disease with its consequences in adulthood. And that's a message we don't see a lot. And I think that's actually such an important message because really, okay, I would always say, intervene as soon as possible. Um, prevention is better than cure, but early treatment is better than than nothing. Um, so, of course, we have to focus on the, the kind of maybe older adults who are affected. But if we can implement programs early in life, we probably would have a, have a move the needle quite a bit further because there's so much that goes on there. And I think it's don't you don't only need to think about osteoporosis in this. Uh, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with um, there's a group of studies, a lot of them led by Professor Stuart Warden, showing that stress fracture risk, previous participation in different sports and particularly um, kind of more multidirectional, higher impact sports in childhood and adolescence is a predictor of risk factor in um, adults, in, in athletes during adulthood. So actually, if you want to protect against fracture during your actual athletic uh, career, um, the more early specialization is not necessarily the best way to go. Um, playing a variety of sports when you're a child, when you're a teenager, is going to be protective of that because it's going to build up that bone at the time that you need it. And also just to highlight what you said there, that's so important. That's not the only thing it's going to do. It's also going to build your muscle. It's going to uh, build your, develop your motor control. So I think in terms of parents and coaches, I agree with you, uh, especially younger kids are not going to be thinking about their bone health. But if parents and coaches can be encouraging people to participate in a range of activities, there really is a lot of benefits there. Yeah. And I really appreciate, um, you know, I know there are some coaches uh, around here. One that comes to mind is Robert Holgram. And, you know, he's always coaching young athletes and he's always including all this dry land training, weight room training, you know, just multi-directional athletic movement, even though his sport is cycling, right? It's mountain biking, it's cross, it's road cycling, but all the athletes are always just so functional in so many other ways. And besides bone, I mean, the research has become pretty clear that it's actually better to do a lot of different sports as a young athlete. And those are the athletes that actually tend to become professionals in one sport later on, but they don't specialize till later on. So I think that's almost a movement in itself that will benefit bone health. Yeah, I think there's so much like there's so much crossover, like obviously your training has to, there has to be the the whole theory of specificity. Obviously, you have to train for the sport you're in, but there is also huge crossover between basic body, what would be the word, capacities. Um, so I think um, this coach that you mentioned, I would say is absolutely on the right track. Build that in as young as possible. Build up that physical literacy that the body can, the different parts can talk to each other, that you're developing the body as a whole. And that's likely to have a lot of positive impacts for your performance and as an added bonus also for your your bone health along the way. 
Right. I love that term, physical literacy. That's a good one. <laughs> that was a friend, a friend of mine in Ireland who was talking about that. You know, the way you talk in school about like if your basic literacy of uh, maths and English, etc. She's been focusing very much on physical literacy and trying to teach the basic move- movements um, to the, the kids that she works with. And I just thought it was a, a nice way to think about it. To yeah. Train no, the body that. early, teach the body early. Mm-hmm. Before we get into some more specific questions, um, in case some terminology does come up like stress fractures, osteopenia, osteoporosis, DEXA scans, could you mm-hmm. just quickly explain what those are? Because I hate to drop terminology that might throw someone off, you know, just the context of a sentence. Yep, absolutely. So I think the ones that we're more than likely going to talk about um with bone, the way it's typically measured is using a DEXA scan, and that measures something called your bone mineral density. So essentially what that is, is the amount of mineral, which is largely calcium, um, per uh, centimeter squared of bone. So it's essentially an indicator of how uh, dense or heavy your bones are. Um, and there is quite a lot of evidence to say that uh, denser bones have it's harder to fracture them or uh, lighter bones fracture more easily. Um, So that's probably the main diagnostic criteria that we look at when we're considering bone health. It is probably worthwhile considering that that's mainly an indicator of the quantity of your bone, whereas there are other kind of ways to measure the the quality of your bone. And I think those two things are important. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to a DEXA scan, it'll normally give you something called a T-score or Z-score. And what they are, the T-score is basically comparing your bone to a reference group of healthy young adults. So zero is essentially average. Uh, it's, It's just the mean of the population. And then you look at whether you're higher or lower than that. And then depending on how much lower an individual is, they could be diagnosed with either osteopenia or osteoporosis. Um, osteoporosis is normally when you've got a score of minus 2.5, which basically means you're 2.5 deviations away from the average, which is really very low, quite low. Um, osteopenia is a word that's, it's, these terms are more often used in a kind of clinical context. It's very, it's quite difficult to kind of specifically diagnose in athletes, but osteopenia is essentially the pre-osteoporosis stage which is where you have uh, lower bone mass than you might be wished for, um, but you haven't reached that stage of osteoporosis yet. And mm-hmm. it's uh, normally defined within minus one and minus 2.5 um, on that T-score range. Well, sorry, T-scores are comparing to just a reference group of healthy young adults. Z-scores are comparing you to, to somebody of your own age group, which it can be often more relevant for, for younger people. Right. Um, yeah. Is there any others that we should maybe define? No, I think that's good. If we if we you know happen to mention mention something, we can always maybe stop at the time or come back to make sure we uh, define it. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about you know here in Canada we have um, I'm not sure how it is in Brazil in Ireland, but you know there's a risk factor assessment and there's all these you know the frac test so all these other mm-hmm. factors that are looked at um on top of the bone mineral density from the dexa scan but i think it's so important to maybe just mention all of the other factors that can contribute to our bone health including like genetics and lifestyle so i'm wondering if you could speak to those before we dive deep into exercise yeah absolutely and i think that is really important is that Something that's particularly relevant for athletes is that something like a DEXA scan 
and your bone density can give very useful information, but it's not always enough on its own. For example, somebody with what appears to be perfectly normal BMD or bone mineral density scores can still suffer a stress fracture. And somebody who has quite low scores might never get it. So it's a very useful guide, but it's not the only thing to consider. And there's going to be a whole range of both modifiable, non-modifiable factors that can influence your bone. So for example, as I mentioned earlier, uh, bone naturally declines in later years. And obviously we can't do anything about our age. So uh, there's that's something called a non-modifiable uh, non factor. However, there's a range of things that we can do related to our activity patterns, our nutrition habits, and also other kind of lifestyle habits like the amount of sleep you get, how much stress you're experiencing, these can all have an influence on your bone health. Um, so really you have to look at the bigger picture when you're thinking about bone. And I think we're going to probably dive into a few of these in a bit more detail now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And from what I've understood, also your genetics, like if you know that your parents or siblings have osteoporosis, like here, you're more likely to, um, I mean, we're on a OHIP system where it actually doesn't cost to have a DEXA scan, but you're more likely to get it earlier if you have that, uh, you know, genetic osteoporosis in your family. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry, when I was talking about non-modifiable factors, that's probably the biggest one. I jumped to age, but that's probably the biggest one that uh, is there that obviously we can't do anything about. But mm -hmm. if you're if there's a history of osteoporosis in your family, um, it's definitely not a bad idea to to have that to look at that because there is a strong genetic factor. And another thing that's interesting to consider is that and particularly relevant for athletes when we're think, talking more about stress fractures that maybe happen during the career is one of the main predictors of getting a stress fracture is whether you've had a previous one. Um, so if you've already had a, a fracture, um, it's definitely worth digging in a little deeper to see if there's anything going on there, because once you've got one, it's your risk of getting another is quite high or higher mm -hmm. than somebody that's never had one. So yeah, uh, family history and your own previous history are two things that are very interesting to look at. Yeah, that is interesting that the risk is higher after one. If we go a little more specific now, so I know that we're both super interested in endurance sports, and there's so many factors and circumstances that surround sports like uh, running and cycling. And I'm going to narrow in on cycling, not only because I love cycling, but because there are more factors um, around cycling that I think could lead to poor bone health. Yeah. So we think about the fact that it's not weight bearing and that we cycle for so many hours that we legitimately take away from the hours we might otherwise be weight training unless you're a professional and you have all the hours in the day <laughs> or you have other circumstances around it. Um, I would love it if we could just speak about, you know, what are some of the other circumstances and how does the whole huge topic of nutrition play into an endurance athlete's potential to have poor bone health? It's a big question, I know. So you can start where you want with that. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. Uh, cycling is a really, really interesting cyclist, a really interesting group to think about these things because there's a whole range of factors related to the sport that are probably not the best for bone. Uh, we've written a, a comment before where we described uh, potentially a perfect storm for bone health in elite 
Mm-hmm. Road cyclists more than it can impact uh, all modalities, but uh, road and speed cyclists in particular. So, right, to break it down in my head, there's kind of five main factors that can be potentially detrimental to bone in for cyclists. One is that a lot of cyclists tend to be quite lean in the first place. So you actually might be just naturally uh, a kind of quite lean, maybe naturally have a, a, a narrower skeleton um, than, say, somebody who is more suited to, I don't know, rugby. So there is a bit of a case there for self-selection of people into the sport based on their kind of the phenotype or their body shape. Um, so that's one thing, which there's not really an awful lot you can do about it. It's just uh, something to, to consider. Um, I think when you think about the characteristics of the sport in general, the way the bone is stimulated to move, the ba- bone essentially responds to the, its physical environment. And what your bone wants to do is to be as strong as it needs to be while still being efficient. We don't want our bones to be too heavy and dense because that would impact our movement. And I think there's a lot of parallels here with uh, the perfect bone and the perfect bike. Um, Essentially, you're just trying to strike that balance between strength and efficiency. You want something that's as light as possible, but that's not going to break on impact. And that's something that bike manufacturers are are doing their best to innovate in with new materials and new designs. And it's, it's very similar to the bones. You want them to be as light as they can be, while still being able to to stand up to the kind of stresses and strains of daily life and also to continue fulfilling all of those other functions that we mentioned at the beginning. Now, the way it usually happens is the more impact that you put on your bones, the more they respond and develop. Um, So sports that would be considered particularly good for bones are ones that have quite a large degree of both muscular and gravitational impact, i.e. if you're um, jumping up and down, putting a little bit of pressure on them, ideally in different directions. So say team sports where you're stopping and starting and twisting and turning, all of these things uh, really stimulate the bone. On the other hand, cycling, it's quite repetitive movements and there's no impact with the ground. Um, so there, there's not really that stimulus for the bones to respond to get to get greater. There's also, as I think we'll probably touch on later on, um, the, the sheer length of time that people cycle for. You might think maybe the sweat can have some implications. And we'll discuss that a little bit uh, later in the conversation. When we're thinking about the nutritional point of view, um, low energy availability is a big risk factor, particularly for endurance athletes and particularly for cyclists. And that can really happen for people can have kind of low energy availability for one of two reasons. Either they're kind of consciously trying to restrict their food because they're trying to be as light as they can, or sometimes it's just really, really difficult to meet the demands of training because if you're spending a lot of hours on the bike, um, sometimes it's just really hard to fit in uh, the amount of meals that you need to to fuel that. So there's Mm -hmm. practical difficulties there as well. And I think I said five, didn't I? And now I think I said four. I'm forgetting what the last one was. Ah, glucocorticoids. I'm not sure right. quite sure. I'm not sure how much of a of an issue it is, but there's certain medications um, that can also be quite damaging to to bone. So if if somebody's taking quite a few medications for various reasons, that can also have a knock on effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's. Um, so those are all super important. You're right. We're essentially just floating above our bikes in particular on the road because as you said with mountain biking at least you have those reactive ground forces if you're you know jumping off logs or just you know the the terrain is not um smooth like you have on the road 
If we dig a bit more into low energy availability, I think that's a term maybe that we should define. And then I'd love to speak to besides bone, so we can talk about how that's been seen to impact bone. And as you said in the beginning of the conversation, you know, bone is slow to adapt. So unless we're doing three year long studies, we're looking at typically acute studies, but still what we've seen so far, you know, what, what's happening with the bone in acute low energy availability um, context, but what is low energy availability? And you already mentioned that it could be achieved in two ways. So um, unintentionally, because you're just expending so much energy. And that's probably what I did as a cyclist without really noticing it because, you know, over the course of, I used to be a wrestler. So I went from wrestling to cycling and I lost 10 pounds, but I never tried, right? It was just um, a, just the way my body is, but still it was just so much expenditure of calories. And I used to eat so much, but at the time I wasn't measuring everything. So that would be unintentional. And as you said, or you could be restricting. So what does it really mean to have low energy availability? And I know you've done some work on, um, the life history theory. So maybe, you know, it'd be great to, to hear how the body works and allocates energy as well. Ah, I love this topic. So if I if I if I dress <laughs> I way off target, <laughs> you can let me know to pull me back. So essentially, when we're talking about low energy availability, we're talking about the amount of energy that's available uh, available for the body after the demands of exercise training have been met. So essentially, consider how much you're eating, consider how much uh, you're burning in training, and then whatever's left over is available to the rest of your body. You have to always consider that every single cell system, tissue, organ, every part of your body uses energy to function. Different tissues, of course, will have different rates. Some need more than others, but everything needs energy. So when you eat, you essentially put energy in your body. And then what your body will do is to distribute that energy out among all of the different processes that it needs to fuel. Um, Now, what's going to happen if you're not eating enough, which can either be because, like you just mentioned, you're expending large amounts of energy in training, or it can be because you're consciously trying to restrict, or it can be a combination of the both. But if you're eating, taking in less than your body needs, your body essentially needs to make decisions about where it's going to send it to. And it's going to try to prioritize the most important functions, for example, your brain has to keep going and your heart has to keep ticking no matter what. So it's never going to skimp on those. But at the end of the day, if there's not enough there, something has to go. And it ends up essentially reallocating the energy, available energy in the way that makes most sense. And that means that sometimes tissues can be end up being downregulated because there's just not enough to go around. And that's described as trade-offs, one thing trading off against each another. And I think uh, a nice parallel that's often used to describe these kind of concepts is to think about the energy that you take in, similar to your money budget. If you've got a certain amount of money coming in every month, you have got a certain amount of bills to pay. If you have an increased bill, for example, I don't know, the rent goes up, or you take a wage cut, you're going to have to think about how to distribute that money. And the way that the trade-offs or the decisions that you make are going to essentially depend on your own set of circumstances, but you're going to have to reduce expenditure somewhere in order to make up that shortfall. And that's what happens with the body as well. And there's a whole range of systems that can be affected if your energy availability is low. 
Um, and unfortunately for the bone, it's one of the ones that definitely does seem to be to be hit uh, first and hardest. One of the biggest risk factors for bone health is low energy availability, among a range of other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super important. I mean, I love the analogy. And unfortunately, you know, for us, we don't get to decide which yeah. parts of the body, you know, <laughs> don't have the energy allocated to them. So like you said, the bone suffers early, um, the hormones suffer early. And yeah, I mean, our heart needs to beat. So it's like a priority system. And I think, I think that, it's probably a good thing that we don't get to decide because if it did, <laughs> as athletes, we'd be probably like, right, I want 100% of energy going to this race. And maybe then you collapse at the end. So it's probably good that our body uh, keeps a check on the most important systems too. Yeah, absolutely. And mind you, I don't think anyone would tick off bone as number one, but still <laughs> to have to make the decision at every moment, impossible. I, I read recently that um, I think it's, dolphins have to consciously breathe. So half of their brain is always awake. Yeah. I I mentioned this to someone in another podcast because we were talking about the brain and, you know, my daughter, she's six. So she's always looking up these really cool facts about animals. And she's the one that showed it to me. And I had to Google it. I was like, you're kidding me. How can it consciously breathe? And they do. And I thought, wow, I would be dead because oh, I yeah, just I forget. Get right, fall asleep. so easily. <laughs> I know. I just find that unbelievable. Wow. Um, I never knew that. I Thank know, you to your daughter for a very interesting fact. <laughs> oh, yeah. She teaches me so many things. Um, yeah. So back to back to low energy availability, though. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've actually met a lot of people who really want to almost clear off their caloric intake. They want to consume 2000, they want to expend 2000, and this is seen as a good thing. So let's get that out of the way. That is, you know, you need calories left over to operate your body. So when you talk about the systems that are affected first, so could you speak to, you know, the few systems and then what are the other common physiological signs to look for when you've been in, I guess we should speak to chronic versus acute low energy availability, because if you're only in this space for, not that it can't happen in a day, like the repercussions, but what is the difference? Let's stick with bone health, since that's what we're talking about first. If you go on a two week period of calorie restriction versus you're always in calorie restriction for months on end. I think that's a really important point because what we'll probably touch on now is models like, say, the the triad and the REDS model, um, which specifically looks at the consequences of low energy availability in athletes. Mm-hmm. And there is, I think for a long time, it didn't get anywhere near enough attention. And now there's a lot of a huge amount of work and there's a lot more awareness of the potential consequences of low energy availability. And sometimes it can be it can almost go too far in that people get very, very worried of, oh, I've got a training camp and it's been really difficult or uh, for whatever reason, you've kind of got a brief period of low energy availability. Really, the short term consequences, if it's part of a planned, structured training program, are not that, are not, are not a, they shouldn't cause any long-term consequences for you, um, obviously depending on, on severity. But the issues are when somebody is chronically, chronically under eating and that can be quite a low level. You don't need to be massively restricting, but if you're kind of chronically, chronically taking in less than you're, you're burning out, something has to give and that's where the, the consequences come. So I think that you don't need to be 
overly concerned if there's a brief period um, where maybe you really do struggle to, to meet your goals because perhaps something's going on. Just make sure that it's done consciously and you're aware of it and they don't let it go on too long or unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a, a kind of an important thing to to touch on. You just I know I've forgotten think... your question. Oh, sorry. sorry. Oh, no, <laughs> that's okay. No, I think... Uh... So have I, <laughs> or are we a pair? Um, yeah, I think I was just asking about um, the repercussions of like acute versus long-term on, on bone in particular, but we can expand into other systems. But I just want to, you made me think of something just there. I've read some research that showed from a bone perspective that there's a difference whether you arrive at low energy availability through caloric restriction Versus, versus through ex- an excess energy expenditure. So what could you tell us about that? Yeah, I think that the study you're referring to uh, is Pat Craig Sales Group. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it was Maria Papagiorgio. Maria, if you hear this, I hope I just pronounced your name right. <laughs> I um, always see her name, so I'm glad I know how to say that now. <laughs> oh, well, God, don't go off me. I might have, <laughs> I might have said it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially they implemented um, two energy-restricted trials, one which was a combination of uh, exercise energy expenditure and the other, which was purely through restricting calories. And they saw a less favorable bone metabolic profile in the group that did it purely through calorie restrictions. So what they seem to be saying or what seemed to be happening there is that the exercise was protecting to an extent against the uh, negative effects of low energy availability or caloric restriction. Um, whereas the, yeah, the, so it seems like the body doesn't, or sorry, in this case specifically, the bone um, does better when it's kind of coming when when you're when when it's primarily driven by um, exercise expenditure rather than from energy availability. Now, I will say that was a fantastic study. However, all studies need to be replicated in a lot of different uh, ways, so we definitely need to dig into that more and look how different kind of lengths of exposures and different groups just to confirm that that consistently happens. But certainly that seems to indicate that um, doing it by energy restriction alone is can be more damaging for the bone than by a combination of exercise expenditure plus energy restriction. Yeah. Now, does that have anything to do with, like, for example, if you ate, let's say you ate 4,000 calories, but then you expended X amount and you're left with 1,000 to operate your body versus if you only ate 2,000 and then you expended X amount and you were still just left with 1,000 to operate your body. This, These are just numbers. Does the fact that you consumed that food at some point and potentially um, absorbed and used those nutrients, do you think that that plays into this? Like it, you actually ate the food versus if you were restricting and never consumed it in the first place? Yeah, no, this is this is something, it's something I've actually been thinking about quite a lot recently. I, I've been discussing this with a few people. And as far as I know, we've no, there's no definitive answer on that. So mm. just to make sure I understood you right, you're talking about the same deficit, however, one happening at essentially a higher level, as in you're both eating and burning more but you have the same deficit as somebody who's kind of both eating and burning less. Is that what you mean? <laughs> Let me make sure I see. Okay, so I'm thinking about you're left with the same deficit, but you arrive at it from a different yeah. place, either restricting or expending more. But the person who expended more actually consumed Seems a lot more calories in the first place. So I'm curious if those that nourishment 
has something to do with the fact that the bone has a better response or less catabolic response breakdown. Yeah, and it does, as I say, it's a it's a super interesting question and there's a lot of people trying to figure it out, but it does seem that the body does better at, they call it flux. So flux is essentially the, the, the rate of turnover of energy. So somebody who is, say, burning a lot in training, but also consuming quite a lot, mm-hmm. generally does better than somebody who's burning less and potentially restricting at the same time. So not only the deficit, but whereabouts it happens mm-hmm. and can have... Uh, and of influence and it really does seem like exercise can be protective mm-hmm. um and and the amount of food you take in is also likely to be uh, very important there and i think and just thinking this now as well something super important what you just said there is it's not just about the amount of calories even though that's hugely important but on that higher diet you have a better chance of, of say hitting all of your micronutrient requirements as well right. whereas and we, we don't have much, we, it seems like in terms of micronutrients, and um, so if that's all of your vitamins and your minerals, it seems like the consequences of not taking enough are quite large, but the benefits of taking more than you need are, there's not really any benefits there. So essentially you just need as much as you need um, and then you don't really need to go further. So I think in the example that you just gave, if somebody's eating quite a lot of food, even if they're also burning quite a lot of energy, um, they're still going to hit or have a much greater chance of hitting all of those micronutrient requirements, which is probably on its own going to be uh, quite protective of bone and other systems. Yeah, and it reminds me a bit about um, people who have low iron, right? So sometimes mm-hmm. those people with low iron are actually um, also have low energy availability. And instead of just running to take iron supplements, if you just work on your nutrition, and your overall iron intake because you're actually not eating enough in the first place, then you might be able to overcome that hurdle in time. Um, What about the whole idea in research that I've seen, again, I think Craig Sales Group, or I know Craig Sales Group, where they compared diets that were higher in carbohydrates and despite being in low energy availability, there seemed to be a bit of a protective aspect to carbohydrate intake. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that's important because there's a big fear of carbohydrate intake in the endurance world. Yeah, I, I think possibly the study that you're thinking of, uh, one came out, I think it was just earlier this year, actually, from Louise Burke's group. Uh, it was led by Nikita Fensham. Oh, I haven't and, even seen this one. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I just assumed that was the one because I know oh, a few okay. years, yeah, a few years ago, Craig's group did one where they were actually given cal- carbohydrate supplements, um, again, in response to acute exercise. And it did seem to show that the carbohydrate supplement had a positive effect on the bone biomarker, the bone response to that acute exercise bout. Mm-hmm. So that was quite a, a kind of a, a tick in, in, in the, the pro side of, of carbohydrates, taking them around exercise. However, the study I'm thinking of just came out quite recently. And what they did was they compared, I believe, three different diets. I'm testing my memory now on the details. Um, but one of them was a kind of controlled diet where it was just following the, the recommendations. One was a low energy availability diet where they restricted everything, uh, that basically dropped everything simultaneously. And the other one was a, a carbohydrate restricted, but calorie wise, it was matched to the, the control, I believe. 
And they actually saw a more negative uh, bone response to the carbohydrate restriction than they did in the low energy availability. Now, neither were ideal in comparison. Both uh, were kind of came out a little worse off than in the control condition. But actually, the carbohydrate restriction one, despite the fact that it had adequate energy, um, actually had a more negative bone profile. Super Uh, interesting, right? Super interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, so that really does seem to, when we take the different studies that are coming, and this really is a very topical and fast changing uh, area investigation, but it really does seem like carbohydrate alone has got an important role to play in protecting the bone health of all of these were done in, in kind of endurance contexts. I believe that Nikita Fedge and one uh, paper, I believe, was race walkers. Um, oh yes, yeah. Okay, this the series of race walking studies. A lot has come from the supernova. Is it those yes, ones? Okay, I, I believe so. Yeah, um, and no, I can link. I can link to any of these after. I can send you through a few links because uh, mm-hmm. they're super interesting. To if anyone's interested in reading them in full. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating and plays right into the sports of like endurance running and cycling because there are sports where athletes are on high carbohydrate diets, but unfortunately. A lot of people are restricting and, you know, I'm sure it's backfiring in their performance anyhow, but, you know, this is just one more reason besides performance to give a shout out to a high carbohydrate diet because it might also be protective of bone. Now, one thing we haven't touched on yet are hormones. Mm -hmm. So I would love it if you could speak to the hormonal disturbances. Um, I guess we can start with females, but let's definitely not ignore the males and mm-hmm. you know, what do we see there as a result of low energy availability? So I think you're probably, I'm sure you've you've uh, heard of and probably a lot of your readers have heard of the, the athlete triad. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what that is, is a, a kind of a triangle or a trio of interrelated conditions, one being low energy availability, that's considered the kind of the underpinning factor in all, um, accompanied by low bone health um, or compromised bone health and disrupted reproductive function. And I'm using gender neutral ways to describe this right now, mm-hmm. because initially it was all the female athlete triad and it was talking about disrupted menstrual function. But like you've just said, this is now much more work has been done in men as well. It does seem to to impact men too. But let's start out with women. Um, essentially, what seems to happen is that when somebody is in low energy availability, that causes a suppression of a whole range of reproductive hormones. Um, we mainly focus on estrogen. Essentially, what that does is it can, during a typical cycle, your hormones are, you peaks and troughs at different times and they're regulating your menstrual cycle. And if you like, we can dig into this a little bit more. However, when you are not eating enough, all of these kind of peaks and troughs essentially level out and the whole hormonal profile is suppressed and that can stop uh, menstruation. And it's quite a common occurrence in a lot of endurance athletes. And I just like to stress that for a long, long time, there probably was the thinking of it's so common that that must mean it's okay, but it's really not. It's really your body shouting at you and letting you know that it's underfueling and needs a lot more. I think for for too long, it was almost seen like a, a badge of honor. If you've mm-hmm. still got your cycle, you're not training hard enough. And um, I would say if you don't have your cycle, you're potentially not fueling enough. Um, so I just think that is an important thing to stress. But the thing that's interesting to consider is that these hormones are not only related to the menstrual cycle, they actually work on a whole range of 
other tissues as well, including the bone. So if you're suppressing your hormones in response, your reproductive hormones in response to low energy availability, that can then have a knock on effect on a number of other systems, including the bone, but also, to be honest, most other systems, because these hormones do actually have quite systemic effects, meaning that they influence quite a lot of different factors. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an important topic. I'm, we have to keep going because I have more questions on this. But so, you know, we'll just use the word period. So mm-hmm. when you lose your period, in case anyone's not familiar with the reproductive terminology, what's interesting about this topic for me, and I'll use myself as an example, when I was racing, I was on the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. So I, at that time, didn't have a lot of knowledge about like, low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport, which is reds for anyone listening, because we see that everywhere. Um, so essentially I wouldn't have known if I was skipping my period because when I would stop my pill for the week, I would bleed. Mm-hmm. Now this is problematic for athletes because, you know, of course people are on birth control pills for, for whatever reason they might be on and might be very important that they're on them. So should that be someone's scenario? What is your, um, I guess, plan of action in a case like that when an athlete seems to be suffering from many other physiological ramifications of low energy availability? Yeah, I think that's a hugely important point that you you just brought up because the hormonal fluctuations that occur throughout a kind of a natural menstrual cycle are very different. Or the, the hormonal profile of somebody with a natural cycle is very different to that of somebody taking oral contraceptives. And where a period is that bleed on the natural cycle. However, when you're on the pill or, or any kind of uh, oral contraceptive, it's actually just called a withdrawal bleed. And it's not the same thing at all. And it will probably carry on. So if you are taking contraceptives, um, just be aware that you don't have that kind of warning sign that somebody with a natural cycle might have. Um, because, yeah, you're you're going to continue with that withdrawal bleed, but that's because of the the pill that you're taking, not necessarily because you're feeling okay. So it's just that little bit trickier to detect if mm-hmm. somebody is potentially in low energy availability um, if they're taking contraceptives. And I think there's also sometimes a bit of a misconception there of people thinking, oh, well, I've got that withdrawal bleed every month, so I probably I'm fine. But just be aware that if you're on the pill, you're going to get that anyway. It can kind of mask that. Um, right. So then you have to start looking at other things. Right. And I mean, I guess to think outside of bone, you know, other things that we could feel from low energy availability, you know, we're not recovering well, that we've lost our snap and our pop or we're moody or we're not sleeping well. Like there are so many other um, physiological things that are happening besides just our bone health um, being potentially negatively affected. So yeah, to look at that bigger picture of relative energy deficiency in sport. And and of course, seeing a physician, because that's always number one, right? See your sports medicine doctor and just be like, okay, you know, what do you think's going on? And maybe you can, there are some alternatives, but of course, if you need to be on an oral contraceptive, you need to be on an oral contraceptive. Um, what about in males? Yeah. So this is actually a super interesting topic because Unlike the vast majority of sports science research, uh, a lot of the research around energy availability um, and the triad and reds has focused on women, um, which is in stark contrast to a lot of the other mm-hmm. uh, areas where it's almost all on men. But there is more and more evidence coming out that this 
these imp- these uh, impacts, uh, sorry, these these concepts can influence men just as much or just as frequently as women. And that is something that is really highlighted in in both models. So the reds, for any, I'm not sure if we defined it as a relative energy deficiency um, in sport, and it's a syndrome that essentially describes all the potential consequences that could occur from low energy availability, whereas the triad is super focused on that kind of trio of energy availability, um, menstrual function and bone health. And I think it's really important to consider that this is not just for girls, uh, this can influence everyone. Um, there does seem to be some evidence to indicate that men are a little bit more robust um, to the effects of low energy availability. And what I mean by that is that it needs to either be a bit more severe, a bit more prolonged before you can detect uh, the issues in men, whereas it seems that we can detect it that bit sooner in women, um, seems to be. However, as I say, we really do need a lot more work in men because a lot of the work that we've done involves looking at things like the menstrual cycle, etc., which obviously doesn't work in men. We have to look at other hormones, for example, your testosterone and the male reproductive hormones. But it really is a, an active area of investigation. Yeah, no, for sure. And you just made me think about something. Um, just to step back to female, so not not every female will lose their menstrual cycle, even if they're not on in oral contraceptive. But for those who do, I mean, that's a pretty obvious Mm -hmm. uh, change. So what about in males? Like, what are we looking for in a male that might be obvious? To be honest, in terms of looking for something very obvious, (laughs) there's not too many because there's a whole range of things that you can look for. But always keep in mind that none of them on their own necessarily mean that you're in reds or that you've got, you're mm-hmm. suffering from, um, going to suffer these consequences. So uh, an article that I can link to in the end is the Reds Cat Tool, which is uh, essentially a, uses a traffic light system to categorize people as being high, moderate or low risk of, um, of, of being in reds or having that uh, deficiency of energy. And they talk to a lot of different things. As I say, none on the, it's very difficult to take any one on their own. But if you consider, consider things overall, you can kind of put people in, in categories of risk. Within that, you're going to look at things like looking at people's actually monitoring their, their food intake and their food habits. If somebody is their attitudes to, towards eating, if somebody is very conscious about uh, restricting or trying to be as light as possible, that's certainly a warning sign. If somebody is uh, perhaps trying to restrict whole food groups, another warning sign, obviously not on its own, but mm-hmm. uh, can certainly uh, kind of just make you think, right, maybe we should look into this a little bit further. Body composition on its own, Probably not a best indicator because we know that some people can actually maintain stable weight while still having kind of the underlying systems being suppressed. However, if you do see that somebody has lost a lot of uh, weight, um, that's certainly another warning sign that you can look to. If you've got access to to a DEXA scan, seeing how their bone health is, that could be a really useful thing. Um, monitoring the way people are performing, the way people are uh, doing in training, if they're not responding to a training program in the way that you kind of would expect, um, this is another possibility. And also keeping an eye on people's general health in terms of if somebody is always coming down with coughs and colds and 
feeling quite tired and feeling a bit fatigued. Again, there could be other reasons, but that would also be a warning sign that potentially somebody is under fueling. So mm-hmm. there's a whole kind of host of factors that you can look at um, and kind of put them together to to see if potentially this person could do with some support in, in meeting their nutrition goals. Yeah, no, that's great. And maybe what I'll do is uh, share the REDS diagram from the IOC statement Mm -hmm. in my newsletter where we'll talk about this podcast just to show all of those systems you just talked about because like you say, it is is a syndrome. Um, Kind of looping back to cycling and running in specific, was there anything else you wanted to add about hormonal health? Um, I don't think so. I think it's something that we could probably start talking about for the next hour or so, but I can't think of anything uh, right now. Well, I also don't really fully remember what I just said. So (laughs) if you feel I've missed something, you can let me know. (laughs) It's all good. That was great. Thank you. Um, So I'm a really heavy sweater. So not Mm -hmm. only am I a heavy sweater, but I'm also a heavy salt sweater. So it's just something that I've, I've always had to deal with. And when I was doing my own research on bone, it was a topic I was super interested in because I thought, oh, okay, you know, am I putting myself at risk um, if I'm losing calcium through my sweat? So I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about what we know there, because I know there's some contradicting research there, but maybe from a chronic perspective would be the most important. So for, let's say, a, a runner or a cyclist who you know, it's always training. So it's sweating day after day, years in a row. So uh, do you mean now the, we're talking about the, the calcium? Yeah, calcium uh, losses through yeah. sweat. Like, is this That's problematic? Such an interesting area of mm-hmm. research. And I think I'll start out with a small caveat in that I 100% agree with you that it's the chronic that's the most likely to impact the bone. However, the studies that we have are all focusing on the kind of the acute. And so then right. we're just kind of assuming that if this carries on in the long term, this will probably happen. For example, in those acute studies, we look at biomarkers that either look at bone formation or resorption or breakdown. So we're either looking at how much bone is building up or breaking down. And then we assume that if a session acutely, say, causes an imbalance favoring breakdown, that if we carry that on for the next six months, that it'll eventually lead to overall reductions. But the caveat that we have to bring there is that we don't have those long term studies. Right. Um, but that's just me being a kind of typical uh, no, scientist sitting on the fence and not wanting to make a, a decision. So there's a really interesting group of studies here around supplementing with calcium and how that in fact, uh, impacts the bone biomarker response to exercise. And I would say that the take home, I was actually just gathering these together for a paper we're working on this morning. There's at least eight or nine studies there that have given calcium supplements around exercise and looked at how it impacts the bone biomarker response. And the evidence is fairly solid, solid that if you're taking calcium supplements around exercise, or sorry, not necessarily just calcium supplements or a calcium rich meal, that can actually create a, a more positive bone profile. And what I mean by that is the more typical response to a prolonged period of endurance exercise, particularly cycling, is that we see an increase in markers that indicate bone breakdown, uh, they're called bone resorption markers. If you take calcium around that same exercise bout, you tend to have a smaller response. So as in, you're still going to increase resorption to or breakdown to an extent, but when you take calcium around it, there tends to be a, a smaller response. And as I say, we assume that if you carry down that in the long term, that can overall be a good thing for your bones. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, since you have these nine studies in front of you and you're really <laughs> deep into this, are you familiar with the study where they compared participants in cool versus hot conditions? Yes. Okay. How how does that fit into what you just said? Because in that study, I understood that you know there was 50% more calcium loss from sweat in the hot condition, yet there were no increases in markers of bone breakdown. So you've probably gotten way deeper into this topic. So I'm curious what you think about this. Now, this is something that I'm trying to dig into at the moment, and I'm trying to wrap my own head around what's going on. I think here, we that one was a really interesting one. I can't remember the the authors at the moment. That was from, I think, Wendy Court's group um, that did that one with the thing. And we just kind of assumed that it was calcium loss and sweat that was... So let's go back a step. We know that during uh, these prolonged bouts of exercise, serum calcium, i.e. the amount in your blood, is reducing. Mm. We know that correcting that with supplements or one really super cool study used in infusion where they were directly um, infusing the calcium, we know that that reduces the bone biomarker response. And we always thought that those losses were because of calcium loss in the sweat. However... Mm. When this group went to confirm that, it seemed like the calcium losses and sweat weren't really uh, influencing the bone biomarker response. However, and this is the bit that we really do need to work to figure out, or sorry, I, I say we, I mean I, uh, maybe other people, if somebody else could be listening to this, be like, <laughs> yeah. no, no, I know, I know what it is, is we don't really know if, the, if it's not about calcium losses and sweat, we don't really know where the calcium is actually going initially during those exercise bouts. Um, However, I would say that notwithstanding why it's reducing, it still is reducing and the calcium kind of supplementation or providing the calcium rich meals do seem to be correcting that. So it seems that not saying the calcium losses and sweat aren't important, but they might not be the only factor. They might not be the only thing going on here. It seems like there's something else going on here that's causing that calcium to drop in the blood. that is maybe the target that we need to be looking at because there really does seem to be good evidence that if we can maintain those serious, those blood calcium levels, we can reduce, we can attenuate or reduce the, the bone biomarker responses. Yeah, and I think you make a good point. Like even like in that study with the, the hot versus cold, as you said, I think in the f- first 15 minutes was when like the um, blood calcium reduced, but yet the dermal calcium losses were later. So, but still your point is that if you supplement or have a calcium rich meal, you know, you slow that increase in markers of resorption. So for the takeaway message, it seems, even though it's an acute study, I know, (laughs) but (laughs) it seems it might be a beneficial thing to do. Yeah. And I think there was a study came out there just very recently. I don't know if you've seen it by, um, it was led by Bronwyn Lundy and again comes from Louise Burke's group where they gave calcium rich meals was it to rowers or cyclists? I actually can't remember the details now. Um, but it was a super interesting study. And what I really liked about this one is that um, a lot of the studies that we have around calcium did involve supplements. And my kind of hesitance there is that taking a lot of supplements around exercise, could it impact uh could it cause gastrointestinal distress? Will everybody tolerate it? Will people want it? Um, so even though from a kind of a mechanistic point of view, super interesting, I wasn't sure about the kind of practicalities. However, this mm-hmm. latest study, which I believe just came out earlier this year, 
um, actually, I've just opened it here in front of me. It's coming out in January 2023. I must have seen a nice. head of print <laughs> uh, copy. What they actually did was to give calcium rich meals um, around training in rowers. Okay. And I think from the point of view, like rowers, when you think about the kind of characteristics of exercise, obviously it's very different to cycling but from the bones point of view it's also non-impact it's also repetitive uh, there's also a lot of sweat etc so you know there's a some similarities there but they actually showed that giving calcium rich meals um around the exercise sessions was leading to a more positive bone profile um than a kind of a, a control meal so i think that is a really it was a very practical um study Right. And it did provide future further evidence to indicate that um, making sure that you meet your calcium requirements and particularly timing it around the session itself might well be a beneficial thing to do for your bone. No, that's great. I know myself, I just, uh, I drink soy milk like before oh. and after. And I mean, you know, it's an easy thing to do. It's also hydrating and yeah, it's just a simple one. I've seen some studies with spring water um, that, I didn't realize until I read that how much calcium could be in spring water. I was like, oh, oh really? I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah I'd have to look right? that up myself. Hold on. Is it spring water or, hold on, I'm probably thinking the wrong kind of water. Oh, no. Now I'm having a brain lapse. I'll put it in the show notes if it comes to me. But yeah, there's a type of water that has, oh, mineral water has 500 milligrams of calcium per I actually didn't realize myself or, just uh, how much it was. Yeah, it's mineral water, I think, not spring water. So then I remember going to the store and being like, oh, I had no idea. Now it's expensive water, so <laughs> it's probably better to just drink milk, but <laughs> fascinating. Now, I see that we're, we're totally going over time. So I just want to ask you before I ask you the last question, because I feel like we could talk about bone for two hours. So maybe there'll be a <laughs> 2.0, but... Is there, like, I know that one of the main messages we wanted to drive across today was, you know, the importance of energy availability and fueling properly for, for sport and just how, you know, to pay attention to that red line where, you know, you're, you're getting lean enough to perform, but not so lean that it's becoming detrimental to both your performance and your health. So that's super important. Um, was there anything that, you know, I know there are a lot of things we could speak to, but is there anything you really wanted to make sure we talk about before I ask you my last question on the show? I think I think you've just made such an important point there of searching for that line of, of course, for a cyclist, being lighter, optimizing that power to master ratio is a really important um thing. However, what you just want to make sure you're doing is focus on both sides of the equation. Don't just try to get lighter. Make sure that you're that it's not coming at the expense of your strength, that you're not losing so much weight that you're losing power as well. So sometimes building power, building muscle can be just as if not more effective than trying to, to lose weight. Uh, we all know that look, carrying kilograms and kilograms of excess fat is unlikely to be useful for your performance. But be very aware that a certain amount of fat is absolutely essential, not only for your health, but for your performance. And be very aware that finding that line is a very individual thing. Um, mm -hmm. So don't compare yourself to other cyclists. Everyone comes in different shapes and sizes and what works for you might not work for somebody else and what works, works for somebody else might not work for you. So there really has to be a bit of trial and error there um, in terms of finding what's right for you. But be very aware that everyone has their own individual kind of profile and you need to find your own uh, that line for yourself 
Um, if you're comparing to external indicators, you can wind up in trouble. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. I mean, we all have different bodies. Um, we all have different body types. And, you know, sometimes what I love about watching women's professional cycling is you'll see a podium of the top three or the top five, whether it's mountain biking or road and, you know, such a variety of shapes and sizes and they're all powerful and strong. You know, some yeah. of them are probably genetically um, longer and leaner or more, you know, muscular um, in size, but, you know, they're all so powerful and it depends on the nature of your sport, right? Are you racing something that's relatively flat? Are you on the track? Exactly. Are you in the mountains? And at some, at some point, like the weight could be very useful. Exactly. And, you know, I'm genetically a pretty long and lean person, but I do remember being weaker on the long flat races and thinking I need to put some weight on, like my size is becoming a bit detrimental. And so, I mean, being cognizant of that is important as well, as well as having a healthy culture around you um, for someone that maybe is in an unhealthy scenario where a coach can say, you know what, you need to gain some weight, like some yeah. healthy weight. And it's so great to, to see that some of the culture is changing, but unfortunately um, there's still a lot of unhealthy culture within the sport. Um, that's great. I mean, this has been so incredibly awesome. I love the topic. We're total boneheads. Can you say <laughs> that in a good way? <laughs> the, it's the only time you can say that and it's a positive thing. It's well, at actually... least right now, we know we're going to get 100% vote for saying <laughs> bone is awesome and fascinating. Yes. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so my last question, and I know you've listened to some of the podcasts before, so you've, you've heard it, but it's around the name of my podcast, uh, which is Imperfect Progress. And I named it that because, you know, at this point in my life, uh, that's how I see life. Everything <laughs> is, uh, progress is not linear for me. I don't see myself as that person that everything just went well and, and is smooth. So I just find that as years pass, I've just learned how to manage, um, I guess, adversity better and better and better. So I'm always curious about my guests more, you know, outside of science or, you know, just as people, how do you manage in your own life or in science or family, whatever it is, when, when things don't go your way, like what, what are you telling yourself and how do you manage this? I love this question because it's, it's something that I kind of think about a lot. And I think what you said there, I don't think progress is linear for anyone, but I think that we, because we only tend to talk about the, the successes that we don't realize it, that uh, we kind of think that other people are, are having a far easier time than perhaps they are. I think for me, there's two kind of elements to this. One is kind of choosing where I devote my time and attention to and the reasons that I'm going to do that. And the other is how I approach kind of both the projects and how what happens when they go wrong. In terms of choosing projects, I'd like to loop back to what we talked about a little earlier in terms of trade-offs. And we were talking about energy and allocating it and how, you know, it's a finite resource. We can only send it in so many directions at one time. And I think that's not just true for energy. That's true for all finite resources, which includes our time, our mental focus, our money. Um, if you spend your time, energy, money, mental focus in one pursuit, you don't have it for something else. So I think we have to be very conscious of where we're devoting our time and energy to. And sometimes when I'm thinking about projects, it's not so much about what do I want to achieve here? It's more about considering what am I willing to give up to 
to get to this because sometimes it's more about considering the trade-offs than it is the the end goal um, and that for me is something that is important because it it, it just makes me think that uh, you know I'm, I'm consciously deciding to go for things that are important to me um, or to pursue things that I'm genuinely interested in and I'm considering what am I willing to trade off on because it's always going to come down to to a trade-off uh, another thing I was actually listening to another podcast recently enough uh, from an Irish girl um, Diren Garry it's called The Last of Your Life and she said that one of the most libera- liberating pieces of advice she got was I believe it was her father who told her in a very loving way, uh, Darren, what you have to remember is that no one gives an F about you. And what he meant by that is that, I think she, she listen to her podcast, she's much yeah. better explaining it. But it was essentially that she was getting all caught up in making career decisions and thinking about what she should do. And he was trying to remind her that obviously your friends and family care about your well-being and that, that you're in a good place. But we put so much pressure on ourselves to do things that we think we should do rather than kind of thinking, what do I really want to do? So when I'm picking projects, I'm trying to think not about what's good for, say, my research profile or my citation index or whatever. It's like, what do I find really fascinating? And then if I'm choosing projects based on that, I'm much more likely to stick with them when things go wrong because I'm doing them for the right reasons in the first place. I'm doing them because I think they're fascinating rather than because of some something that I think is interesting. And then I, I think, yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed that uh, podcast. And then I think when you're in the middle of a project, one quote that keeps coming back, in fact, some people have started attributing to me because I say it so often, is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. And I think striving for perfection, you're just setting yourself up for a fall. Perfection does not exist. Um, and sometimes I think waiting to act until something is perfect, it's almost a fear-based thing because it's kind of an excuse not to act, but like it's never going to be perfect. So I think don't ever let progress, imperfect progress, let's say, uh, just because it's imperfect, don't allow it to stop you making progress. Um, I think that's a huge thing. Like sometimes it's enough to just do something well um, and be aware that everything is going to have its 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 pros and cons, but uh, just do as best you can. And just the final thing that I'd like to say there, a quote that I also really like and that resonates a lot with me is from the, the writer uh, Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. And she says, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And I just think that's so powerful because I think that we make decisions and we work on projects or we do what we do with the information that we have at that specific time. And maybe in a year's time or maybe moving forward, you'll learn something new and you'll gain a new perspective. But don't beat yourself up about things that maybe imperfect decisions you made in the past because you did the best of what you have had at the time. However, mm-hmm. once you know better, do better and be prepared to adapt and change your mind. And I think that's particularly relevant for a lot of what we've been talking here today. A lot of what we've talked here today are about studies that have come out in the last year or two. Who knows what's going to come out in the next year or two? And we have to be ready to kind of update based on new information. So yeah. they're the kind of some of the thoughts that I have on that. I love your name, by the way, the Imperfect Progress thing. Mm. I think it works great. And Thank yeah. you. That's great. No, super. You could have a whole episode on this too. It seems like. <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote. I've heard it so many times, yet I still got goosebumps when I heard it. But it is. It's so true. It's like I look back, I, gosh, I'll say 10 years, but I could even say two years that you know, things I, I've done and 
sports nutrition or, or writing that I've done, it's like, oh my God, I wrote that or I said that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think, and, you know, Twitter's interesting for this because if I tweeted something in 2018, mm-hmm. And once in a while, someone will like a tweet that I did in 2018 and I look <laughs> at it and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't believe that anymore because I've learned differently, but yet it's still out there. But all I can say is, hey, you know what? I've learned a lot more since then. And uh, and maybe I should go and delete my old Twitter. But, <laughs> but besides that, I mean, science is such a great example of that. I mean, I've seen some of the best scientists in the industry um, who research uh, skeletal muscle and who have now turned a leaf to say that, yes, vegetarian protein is as effective as, you know, eating animal-based protein for building muscle. Now, 10 years ago, they would have never said that, but there's new research, right? So Exactly. So we have to be able to, to roll with it. Mm-hmm. And I did see a tweet recently enough where somebody said, uh, if you don't look back on something you wrote several years ago and think, what a load of crap, well, that means you haven't learned anything in the last two years. <laughs> there, you there you go. Well, 15 years ago, I was the person who drank lemon water with cayenne pepper and maple syrup. So I'm going to admit that <laughs> on my podcast. It's the most embarrassing thing in the world. But if I would do that today for my health, um, I'd be fooling myself. But well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. I know we went over time. Um, sorry about yeah, that. Sorry, but- I do tend to ramble. I warned you at the beginning. Oh, no, I think <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's such an amazing topic. Where, if people want to learn more about you or read more of your research, um, where could they find you online? Um, online, I'm not, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm not hugely active online. I need to get better at that. You will find me on Twitter at, at Emerdole, E-I-M-E-A-R-D-O-L. My research gate is just Emerdolan, although, as you mentioned, there's another woman with the same name that has a, also work in bone. Um, and look, I'm, I'm always happy to discuss any of these. I'd be happy for you to share my in your newsletter, share my contact details, my my Twitter links, even my email. And if anyone wants to follow up on anything like this, I love talking about these things. So feel free to get in touch. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. This was fantastic. Thanks, Anne. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. As you can tell, we loved that conversation and it went a little bit longer for that reason. I hope you learned a lot about bone health and sports nutrition and why it's important for performance and longevity and why we shouldn't just leave it to chance. If you'd like to support me and my podcast, you can do so by supporting my sponsor, Inside Tracker. So let me tell you about Inside Tracker. It makes a great tool to add to your toolbox as an athlete. What is it? Essentially, it helps you to optimize your body through science and technology. What they do is they analyze 43 biomarkers in your blood, they look at your DNA, then they get information about your lifestyle, your nutrition, your fitness habits, and create an actionable plan for you. So the guide includes specifics, including recipes. Let's say, for example, your iron is low. They might give you recipes specific to iron or calcium, since we were just talking about bones. Or what they do is they give you a list of recommendations based on your information, and then they rank them in order of which will have the most impact for you. So Inside Tracker was created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. One of the other things they do is calculate your biological age. So that's the rate at which you're aging compared to your chronological age. So that's super interesting. 
One thing I want to point out is the value of doing more than one test. So use the first test as a baseline because how can you know you're normal until you have another test to compare it to? Once you have two tests, you can start to see if there are differences. And then with the third one, you can start to see if there are trends, especially if you've been working on a particular blood marker. Let's say, for example, you're looking at iron or ferritin, you can start to see, oh, am I trending upwards? Am I trending downwards? So it is important to use that first test as a baseline. One thing I love that Inside Tracker is doing now is they now have a 10 chapter series of mini courses that you can watch from one of their registered dietitians. So that really helps you to understand what biomarkers are, to understand how biomarkers for different areas, including blood sugar, cholesterol, vitamin D, inflammation, and so on, you know, what do they mean? And it's great to have that education when you're getting your plan and looking at your blood biomarker results. So this is a great new feature from Inside Tracker. I'm going to put a link for that in the show notes and then also in my newsletter. So if you're not subscribed to my newsletter, head to anguzman.com and at the bottom of every page, you can subscribe. I have a monthly newsletter. And what I do is I always pick a few sections from the podcast and I just dig a little bit deeper and then I link you to some resources so that you can learn more if you're interested. I might have other newsletters that are on other topics besides the podcast, but I always do a newsletter attached to every podcast so we can do a bit of a deeper dive. So right now, if you head to my Imperfect Progress promotion, that is insidetracker.com forward slash Guzman Nutrition. That's G-U-Z-M-A-N and then N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N insidetracker.com forward slash Guzman Nutrition. You can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. So check it out. It's super interesting. I've really loved my experience with them so far. Again, thank you so much for listening. It's the holiday season right now. I hope that people have an opportunity to slow down. You know, do what works for you. There's so much advice out there right now on what we should do for the holidays, how we should eat or shouldn't eat, move or shouldn't move, but do what works for you. For me, it works to keep on moving. I like having a bit of a routine and a bit of structure, um, but you know, I loosen everything up a bit. So do what works for you. I know it's busy. I hope you have some time to relax. Keep on moving, even if it's just getting out for some nature and some walks. And I'm super excited for 2023 with you. I have some interesting guests and topics lined up and it's going to be awesome. So just remember, keep moving and everything's going to work out just one step at a time. See you next time.